Hi, thank you for tuning in to the Finding Harmony podcast with me, your host, Harmony Slater. Hello. Wow, what a week we've had. It was a really good week for us. I felt like a weight was lifted on Wednesday here watching uh, President Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris be inaugurated into their new positions. And it was just a stunning inauguration. Uh, Every speech, every person who stood up to speak was so, oh, just so refreshing after the four years that we've been living through. And I especially found Amanda Gorman's poem that was such a surprise. Um, I wasn't expecting that. I, I mean, I've actually never watched an inauguration before, so this was kind of monumental for me. I don't didn't know what to expect, and her poem was incredible. It was so inspiring, and she was just glowing and completely full of wisdom, and her words just were perfect. It was an incredible speech. I loved Um, everything she had to say. It was perfect for the occasion and so incredible to have her stand up there and represent a hopeful future, a future where young people are heard, where there's equality and unity and harmony and peace. And it was um, just a wonderful way to start a new chapter and to uh, move forward. And so... We thought, who better than to speak to today about issues of social justice and equality and creating uh, more awareness within the wellness spaces that we teach and practice in than our good friend Shana Small. Shana is someone who I really respect and admire as a practitioner, as a woman, and as someone who's using her voice to increase good, increase awareness, and is a force in in the yoga world, in the Ashtanga community, and in our wellness spaces, and someone that I think is a leader and we should really be listening to. So I hope that you enjoy this podcast episode as much as we enjoyed speaking with Shana and recording it. And there's lots to think about in here, lots to learn, and you can join her for one of her upcoming courses, which I think will be completely refreshing and an amazing place to meet her and get to know her if you have an interest in going deeper. Hi, thanks for tuning in to the Finding Harmony podcast. Today, I'm so excited because we have... A uh, special guest. All we our guests a, are special, but we have a very special guest <laughs> <Yes>. today, <laughs> Shana Small. Shana Small. Shana's been practicing Ashtanga Yoga for about twenty years, and I first uh, came to know of her through the Ashtanga Yoga Picture Project, which was, I think, a blog she had back in the early two thousands. And Shana, I met you at like a vegan restaurant somewhere. I think it was Charlottesville. Is that where that was? Wow. Or, okay. Atlanta, or Miami. One of those. <laughs> I think it was Miami it was at vegan the restaurant tour maybe last year or yeah. two years back. It was Miami. That's what it was. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Where are you joining us from today? I am in Charlotte, North Carolina. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. That's, um, yeah, I've got, I've got bad feelings about Charlotte. Uh, Why? it's only it's only because uh i'm a new orleans saints fan and i just can't stand those panthers and i (laughs) i can't do it i can't go i just yeah i I, i've been in the airport and i just like oh i'm charlotte (laughs) (laughs) you remember steve smith are you familiar with the panthers do you know the teams I really am not. Yeah, I'm not very familiar with the Panthers. I'm not a good Charlottean at all. Yeah, all right. All right. Where are you? But where are you from? Are you you're from? Are you from Georgia? I'm from Alabama. Oh, you so are. So I 
that's like, you know, roll tide and all that. Yeah. I, I, I spent all my summers in Alabama down there, um, by Foley. Do you know Foley? It's right near, um, it's right near Gulf, Gulf Shores. And I, I don't. Um, my family is uh, near the bottom of Alabama, um, almost close to Florida. Yeah. On the, okay. On the other side of that little widget. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. It's pretty. That's, yeah. that's about it. Super pretty. Yeah. <laughs> I used to, I used to go, uh, shrimping. In in that I we we'd we'd push the boat off uh, from Foley and my grandpa and I we'd we go shrimping. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How old were you when you started practicing Ashtanga yoga? I was in college. Let's see, the end of college. My daughter was just born. Uh, so I had to have been 22, I want to say. <laughs> 23. Yeah, I was a young thing. <laughs> yeah, wow. But a new mom, that must have been challenging. You know, it was, but my husband is a great support. So, I mean, he, when I needed to go practice, he was there. I didn't practice, you know, six days a week at the time. Um, But I practiced um, about three days a week. And my husband was a trooper about all of that. So yeah, it was, it was fine. It was good. That's great. It's so helpful to have a good support system when you're a new mom and trying to like do something for yourself. Is that directed to me? <laughs> I'm sorry. Or, or an old mom. <laughs> where, where, you went to Georgia State, is that right? That's right. Uh-huh. I went to Georgia State and graduated from there. What were you studying there? Um, business administration is what my degree is in, and I was studying um, marketing, uh, which I use all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, especially these days. <laughs> exactly, right? Mm-hmm. And I have a question. What made you interested, like what initiated your um, start of the Ashtanga Yoga Picture Project? So with the Ashtanga Picture Project, um, I started that because I wanted to um, see more representation of everyday bodies practicing Ashtanga. Um, You know, I was kind of tired of the highly... um, like highly um, airbrushed and pretty like tight, whatever pictures that I was seeing everywhere. And I knew from being in the Ashtanga rooms that I've been in, especially when I was in Atlanta, that during that time um, that, you know, there's lots of different people who are practicing Ashtanga. Um, So I wanted to show all different types of bodies practicing so I started the Ashtanga Picture Project. And at the time it was like, you know, anybody who wanted to submit their pictures, they could. And they submitted them and I would just post them up on the website and write a blog or two every now and again. Um, and that's how it started. Um, and then one day I was talking to one of my friends and I got into like heavy blogging about yoga sutras and things like that. And she was like, well, your blog has matured to its next level. She was like, you are no longer a Shanga Picture Project. And I really think that's not an appropriate name. Um, You've graduated. And I was like, okay, cool. So I named it a Shanga Yoga Project just to take the focus off of the, the pictures and the physical and really kind of like evolve what the blog was and who I was as a person. Why were you in, in the, uh, the yoga room in the first place? Uh, how, what's your story to get in there? Um, so when I was in college, um, yeah, I've always been, I've always been athletic and into health. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I was growing up, you know, my mom could not afford to put me into dance and I couldn't afford to play sports and any of that. So I never really got into anything physical. Mm-hmm. So when I went to college, you know, I, I wanted to try yoga. I'd heard about it and, you know, I had my own money at this point. Um, and so I tried it and uh, I loved it. Um, and I did it um, like a mommy and me type of thing when my daughter was first born. Um, and then I started taking a few classes at the um, 
at the gym near me. And then the girl who was teaching the gym class, she moved and then I was by myself. And so one day I was um, in, at college and one of the professors there mentioned that he was a certified Ayangar instructor. He was certified by BKS Ayangar's family and actually practiced with Ayangar. And so I was excited. I went up to him after class and I was like, wow, I'm looking for a new yoga teacher in a new yoga studio. Should I come practice a Yangar yoga? And he looked at me and he said, no. And I was like, okay. He was like, no, you don't need to practice a Yangar. He was like, you're young. You got a lot of energy. I think you should practice a stronger yoga. Really? I was like, hey, yeah. And then he gave me a um, reference for a studio at the time that was all Ashtanga in, in Atlanta which was Atlanta yoga at the time. It's not all Ashtanga now. It might not even be open. I'm not even sure. <laughs> and so then I started there. So like, and I, I loved it from the beginning. It, you know, I, I love a challenge. Um, I was young, um, fearless, felt like I could do anything. Uh, so I was like, okay, I'm going to try this. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to like rule this and I'm going to do this. And I loved it from the, from jump. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. That's interesting. You know, when I walked in, into my first class, one of the things that I, I noticed right away was that I was, I was the only boy and that was, you know, that was cool, but it was also uh, demoralizing because they were all doing things I couldn't do at all. And it was the same way. I mean, that's where I was. I was in art school, but you know, art school is also like 75%, you know, white girls. And Mm -hmm. so I do things like go to yoga and be all, you know, 98% white girls. I go to, to, I had a ballet class. That was the same thing. Uh, Did it, is that, were you finding that in your Ashtanga class in, in Atlanta that it was like all white girls? So when I was in Atlanta, let me think about it. Yeah, it was definitely, uh, primarily white people who practice at the studio um, where I was at. Uh, Atlanta is a very black city. Mm-hmm. So um, I guess having that strong black community there uh, juxtaposed against that community um, made it uh, doable or, you know, all right. Um, and then there is um, this thing of systemic, not systemic oppression, but internalized oppression. Um, that happens uh, a lot um, with people who are in oppressive societies. They start to internalize the messages that they're giving given about themselves. Mm-hmm. So at that point, I was not questioning the idea that whiteness was being centered in a lot of spaces, um, especially since I was in Atlanta and it is a heavily um, black populated city. Uh-huh. Um, you would think I would have noticed it, but there was a, like a lot of systemic oppression um, and like this idea of this is how the world is. And I didn't, um, excuse me, internalize oppression. Um, and I wasn't really questioning it at the time when I was there. Um, And honestly, in Atlanta, that particular studio was um, so community-based. I mean, loving, everyone knew your name. If you missed a class, you would get an email or a call, like Shane, not from the teachers, from the other students, like Mm -hmm. worried, not because they wanted your money, um, worried, like Shayna, you always show up on Tuesday night. Where were you? We didn't see you. Oh, I'm fine. Um, We would hang out after class. There was dinners and get togethers. And it was really this extraordinarily community-based studio that honestly, I have not experienced since then. And I also think that part, the fact that they were so welcoming and so like all about community, it also made that part be something that I didn't really get into in Atlanta. It honestly wasn't until I came to Charlotte um, that I actually started to feel um, the uh, lack of representation. Mm-hmm. Um, but in Atlanta, uh, the studio had such a beautiful feel to it. Um, and you felt so like brought into the family right away that like, it was just so beautiful. And so I, you know, I felt at home. Well, it was, it was certainly 
when we we've been watching the elections the last couple of months and we and we're all like sitting there on the edge of the bed praying on uh on the Atlanta counties and like and you're just like please 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 will, will we get this black representation to you know and then in the middle of the night like the finally the votes come in is like oh thank god thank god they came in so we have been learning a lot about Atlanta as a city um uh, you, you must have been very excited about how much, how incredibly powerful Atlanta has become recently as a as a as a city, as far as represent, representing itself in the in the country. I mean, I've always loved Atlanta. I still love Atlanta. Um, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if I wound up back in Atlanta at some point. <laughs> Um, in my life, you know, Atlanta, you know, good for Atlanta. It was, you know, good to see. Um, but like I stand in this place of like, it's just like the tip of the iceberg. It's mm-hmm. like, there's so much work that needs to be done. And I'm thankful for the small victories um, that we get though. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. There was a there was recently um, a Capitol police officer was ma- named acting chief uh, after the the insurrection. Um, there was a Captain Yogananda Pittman. I don't know if that came up on your radar. I saw that, and I think people have been asking about that, and I don't know if Yogananda has answered, but. Um... <laughs> <laughs> I think it's awesome, and uh, and I would love to hear the story of how that came about. Really, <laughs> right? You, when, you know, it's it, but it's the thing is like when you see a name like that, it's like the you know um, a young African American woman about forty named Yogananda Pittman, and your your internalized bias would say, oh, that doesn't make sense. You know, she's black. Why is her? Why was she born Yogananda? But it's like. I, I remember reading about John Coltrane and how incredibly important Yogananda, Paramahamsa Yogananda was to him. He had, he'd kept autobi- autobiography of a yogi close to his heart. Of course, Alice Coltrane is, you know, a way out there spiritualist herself. But it's, you know, it's it's interesting to think of yoga is as steeped in African-American culture as it is anywhere else. Like, why would we even question why her name is Yogananda? Mm-hmm. Um, that book was also my husband's, um, like, first for, uh, foray into yoga. He loved that book. Um, when he, he read that before we met, he's about eight years older than me. Um, but, yeah, before we met, he read it. He absolutely loved it. Um, and yeah, I don't think we should be surprised at all, you know, because yoga did come from a, you know, heavenly, uh, heavily melanated culture. Um, <laughs> you know? I've, never, I've never heard that phrase before. <laughs> wow. Yeah, they're, yeah. You know, they're, they're melanated over there. And I know some of them don't like the fact that they are. But um, Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a thing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow does your yeah. husband practice yoga now he does it um but like not the way that we say it but my husband to me is is a yogi like through and through just in the way that he lives his life the way that he thinks the way that he studies he does like um Ramakrishna and we'll listen to like some, you know, old uh, podcasts from his um, students, like, you know, you know, he didn't say much, um, but um, mm-hmm. so it's like kind of like saying what they thought he was saying. Um, yeah. But yeah, my husband, I, I feel that he's a yogi without, you know, doing all the stuff that we would, we would say um, yogis do. And there's a lot of people in the world that are really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's wonderful. Oh. So you you were in Atlanta and you were in school and and you were you you started doing yoga like with um, mommy and me yoga I think you said, and then you started getting into it and there was this entry for you where you really felt at home and embraced in the uh, Ashtanga yoga scene there, and then you went to Charlotte. But are you in are you there in Charlotte now? Are you in DC? 
I am in Charlotte. You are in Charlotte. Okay. And that's I don't, I'm not in DC. <laughs> <laughs> don't put me in DC. Yeah. Yeah. I'm it's, good. Um, <laughs> well, very, very, very soon it'll be its own state. It'll, it'll be a, a very different place <laughs> that we'll talk about. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, you know, something that, that Harmony is, has been talking about to me recently that I found really fascinating the last, um, last six months or so, I think you took a very progressive yoga sutras class um, on maybe uh, Sanskrit with your professor from Toronto. Oh, yeah. And he came on the show. One of the things that was super interesting that came up was this idea I'd never thought of, which was, you know, yoga as activism. And really kind of depending on how you define ahimsa, maybe Harmony, you could talk more about that. Well, uh, Shyam Ranganathan from uh, Yoga Philosophy, um, people can find a link to it uh, on my Instagram and my bio links, but if they're interested in learning more from him. Um, but he was speaking to the fact that um, ahimsa or nonviolence isn't just a matter of um, not doing harm or sort of sitting back and being a pacifist or uh, not participating, but it's actually because yoga is a path of action, it's disrupting the harm that's within your uh, sphere of influence. And so it's actually making an active stance against the harm in a sense, you know, doing harm to harm. I mean, in a non-harmful way. <laughs> um, <laughs> being active and you're being being against harm. Yes, yes. Yeah. That you can't actually practice ahimsa without taking action against other people doing harm within your sphere. Is that something that resonates with you? It absolutely does resonate with me. I think a lot of what has happened in the yoga world is this kind of piecemealing of information and putting things together, taking a little bit here and a little bit from there and what we want and what we don't want, we're leaving it there. And some of it is, I mean, all of it in, in a certain level is our, is our fault, but some of it is like just people don't have access to the information because if you're walking into your yoga studio and they're like, come on, let's work out and then putting on, you know, <laughs> Kanye West or whatever, then, you, you know, you, you don't have access, it, access to that information and you don't know that it's there. Um, but I think in the yoga world, it's like this piecemealing of information. Like most people have not read the whole yoga sutras. And then most people probably have not read the Bhagavad Gita, which is all about action. Um, and, and some people feel is way more in line with the modern yoga student than the yoga sutras, which is kind of a, hey, die before you die type of book. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. We kinda, like pick little pieces out of it. We're like, I'm not ready to die. So I'm going to take this part, Patanjali, right. and I'm going to use right. this. So I think yeah. a lot of people are like jumping to the die before you die state without mm -hmm. like actually like understanding what that is and without doing all the work. Like they still have all of their like clashes and all of their like ideations and mm -hmm. all of their garbage. And then they're jumping to this like, oh, well, you know, I'm this yogi and we we don't get involved and all this stuff like that. I mean, there is a level for that, but that type of yogi is also like, you know, kind of like not getting involved because they're like on the way out. So it's like, if you're not on the way out, then you're here. And if you're here, you have a, you have a duty and there are actions that are still going to be happening through you that, you know, have to be acted upon. Um, and that goes in line with the Himsa, as um, Harmi says, when it comes into your awareness, if you are a yogi, if you've taken the vow to mitigate harm and it comes into your awareness that harm is being done, then, you know, you're on that versus if you're in that die before you die state, like you're kind of like, you know, in this kind of like meditative kind of out here somewhere. It, it's not coming into their awareness, mm -hmm. but for us it is. So it's like, once it's there, it's like, what you're going to do about it. 
Um, <laughs> it's there. And yeah, so it's our duty to mitigate harm and to have a further understanding of what it means to be a householder yogi um, versus a yogi that is about to renunciate and die any day now. <laughs> was it was it Stokely Carmichael who said, um, if you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem? Am I am I in the right ballpark, you think? Maybe, but I, I like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's 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 I I feel like my less melanated culture is so there's they're, they're so taught to be uh submissive to authority and to you know just to absolutely lay down for it and to to encourage others and to encourage women to lay down for authority uh pardon the expression <laughs> that uh it it creates a it, it creates a society that's just really that's passive and is not you know actually radicalizing itself for positive progressive change and accepting the, the status quo. And as the status quo slides further and further and further towards white supremacy and totalitarianism, it's, it's like the, the frog in the boiling pot. It didn't know how it got there. Mm -hmm. um, or it's all part of white supremacy's tactic in the first place. I don't, and we've already been there. I'm not. I think it's, you know, it's a, it's a privilege to be able to like, uh, lay down and be pat be like really happy that's like a privilege right but you're the person who is you know sustaining the blows or um you know <laughs> yeah. feels, you can't be passive so to me like that is a huge sign of privilege if someone has the ability to sit back and not say anything and be quiet and not be affected mm -hmm. which everybody's being affected, but people just think they're not, um, but not right. have the seemingliness of not being affected. That's yeah. complete, complete privilege. Yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. That's, that's a, I, I, I didn't, I didn't quite bake my thought before I said it out loud, but that really puts it together. That's nice. I, I really like that point that you're making there, Shana, because being, or I guess being in a position where you don't have to take action or feeling unmotivated to take action is because everything's working for you already, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's it. That is <laughs> like Black people are saying, they're like, dude, you can sit back and like not do anything and say, let's be peaceful because yeah, you're in a place where, you know, you don't have to have direct action right now. It's kind of like, you know, if, you know, if I'm sick, like, and it's my sickness, I ha I cannot ignore it. I have to do something about it. It's right there in my sphere mm -hmm. versus, you know, someone across the street, if they're not feeling this sickness, then they don't have to do anything about it. Mm -hmm. And we're like, dude, we're over here. We're sick. You can help me. You got some of the medicine, but you're <laughs> over there like, well, you know, it's not my problem. Right. Mm -hmm. And we're like, Okay, <laughs> that, that's interesting. That reminds me of when um, when uh, Supreme Court Justice Gorsuch in the summertime, he came out and he said, you know, it's just we, we think it's important to have a civil discussion before we, we go any further. And and people pushed back on that and said, well, that's totally totalitarianism in the first place, because we can't have a civil discussion if one person is being strangled to death. Mm. How is how can we have a civil discussion when one of us can't breathe? Right. I wanted to to ask you about a um, some of your uh, Instagram posts, which are are fantastic, um, and I really en enjoyed uh, looking through them. One of them I want to read, um, dear white folks, if you were thinking about posting an MLK Jr. quote, an MLK Jr. Um, Remembrance Day was yesterday, mm -hmm. his birthday. Uh, if you're thinking about posting an MLK Jr. quote in response to folks storming the Capitol, please don't. Can you tell us a bit more about that post? Well, a lot of times it's simply just spiritual bypassing. It's just an attempt to um, kind of silence 
uh, the conversation that is happening. Like, oh, okay, all this happened, but be peaceful, be peaceful. It's just like an attempt to silence it. Let's not talk about it. Let's not deal with it. Um, let's not grieve it. Let's not come to terms with it. Instead, we're going to throw this MLK quote on there, number one. Mm-hmm. And number two, you know, the deeper you go into research on MLK Jr., and I am not an MLK Jr., uh, specialist. Let me go ahead and put that out there. Um, But, you know, I went to school here in the United States where, you know, you're basically given this one-sided vision of who MLK was. um, And then the deeper you go into it, you find out that, you know, his views were highly like socialist, um, that he was um, about the peace, but not at the expense of Black people. And so he was also very radical about change needing to happen in the United States that needed to be radical change. Mm -hmm. Um, And once he started trying to do more radical changes, that's when he was killed. Um, Mm -hmm. It was okay if, you know, it wasn't okay, but we can deal with the fact that, okay, you want black people to sit at this counter and on this place in the bus, that doesn't fundamentally shift the systems itself. That's still Mm kind of like everyday comfortability on the surface type thing. Mm-hmm. But then when he got ready to like go deeper, he was like, okay, good. We got here. Some laws got passed, but now we got to deal with this um, wealth inequality. Uh, now we got to deal with this militarism. We got to deal with all this stuff. And then when he was like, okay, let's go here. Then they're like, oh no, I'm gonna kill you. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so like yeah. I, people kind of, for some people honestly just don't know about that part of them. Okay. And um, it's really like, disrespectful, honestly. Um, I could only think, you know, I could only imagine someone taking my words and forgetting a whole part of my legacy um, and using that little soundbite that they took out of context to represent me um, Mm -hmm. in perpetuity. Um, And I could only imagine, you know, that happening to me. So I'm definitely not going to do it to MLK Jr. Hmm. Yeah. If there's this, this, this idea that it's kind of performative, like you're like you're pretending to to look a certain way because it's appropriate because it's considered appropriate to look that way. Yes. And so you put up, you throw up your MLK quote. It's like, well, I'm you know I'm one of the good guys. When actually, I think like I think actually like Ted Cruz put up an MLK quote yesterday. When actually he's working destructively to harm, you know. Um, most people, if not just brown and black people, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's such a it's a hypocrisy. Um, but it's it's hard because at some point, like yesterday, you know, I I wanted to kind of put up an MLK quote on my Instagram, but you know, it it's 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 tough to know when when you're being performative and when you're doing enough. Yeah, um, I think that's some deep, deep work that people have to do within themselves. Um, You know, it's, you know, me being involved in social justice, I'll use myself as an example. I don't know a lot about certain areas of social justice. Like, I'm pretty much vegan, but like, I (laughs) don't. I understand the premise of veganism, but I'm not like, like a vegan social justice person. I'll go ahead and say that. So because I'm not really that invested, yes, I I try not to eat animals, but I'm not really a part of that community and that part of that movement that deeply, like you won't see me like put up like, a post on my page making it look like I am. Does that make sense? Like that does. That's a great uh, example because that would be performative and and as you said, shallow. Yeah. I know I, I'm not really like, yeah, I, I do, I do a little bit. I do. Yeah. I, deep, deep, deep down, there's much more I could be doing when it comes to, you know, animal rights. Mm-hmm. And so therefore I'm not going to portray myself as someone who has really got skin in the game. Mm-hmm. When they animal rights, and it's the same yeah. thing with quotes and stuff. It's like, do you really have the skin in the game um, 
And if the answer is no, only that person can answer it. Cause I don't know what you do on a daily basis or what, you know, anyone who might be, you know, who might say that they're white or doing on a daily basis. I don't know mm-hmm. that. So it's for them to sit with it. Um, but however, people do notice if like, that's the only time of the year that you put anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh, that's okay. It's like, uh, um, Black History Month. It's the one <laughs> month. And every other month is, is White History Month by definition. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, March, March, we go back to white history. That's what we're gonna do. I wanna I wanna ask you, I wanna ask a, a slightly more maybe uncomfortable question for all of us. We've we've had a discussion about the word white on the show before. Um, with your friend who wrote about um, diversity. And, and Jag Deep Johal? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. He taught he we did a, a segment on our show where Jag came on and it was called Our His Lunch with Two White People. <laughs> and so you can follow you can find that in, in Harmony's um webpage. But um the discussion that we had about it was uh this book When the Irish Became White. Um, which is about the efforts that the Irish and the Italians had to make to be a part of white culture, which might seem weird to us now, 130 years later, but the, but at, the, at that point in the 1870s, 1880s, 1900s, the Irish were considered pigs, you know, subhuman. You know, they were red and ruddy and hairy and they lived in, with pigs. And so... Uh, and that was that was very it was very difficult for them to um, enter into, uh, say, um, privileged society, and the same for the Italians who suffered the same kind of racist abuse for a long time. Um, but at a certain point, they became white, and so this book talks about how problematic the word is because. Um, what it really does is ignore real basic problems with society that there are extremely rich people and then all the rest of us. And if, if you're still fighting amongst yourselves about who's black and who's Irish and who's Italian, then how are you going to get into a union together to fight oppression? And I, and I feel like the, that we use the word white, um, undermines people's efforts to get together. And I wanted to know your feelings about that because certainly like, um, like black is a different word. I think black has so much more connotations about pride and self-determination than, than white does. I, I just wanted to know if you had any feelings uh, on this. So, you know, race is a construct, mm-hmm. it is, but it's like a construct that's here now So it's like, you know, it's like you have to kind of deal with it. Like, you know, the whole white and black thing is whole whole thing is is totally unfortunate. Mm -hmm. Um, But in it, but the construct is here and the construct is powerful and the construct is having uh, an effect. So it's like, you know, we have to deal with the constructs that have, you know, occurred because of these words we've chosen. You know, it's kind of like a Shanga yoga and a Yangar yoga and power yoga and this yoga and that yoga. Like, you know, at some point somebody made the decision that, you know, this is a Shanga yoga. This is what it is, even though, you know, there's things of, you know, uh, Patabi Joy saying, oh, this is Patanjali yoga. <laughs> like, right. yeah. a yoga and this is what it is. And even a Yangar was like, oh, you know, no, I practice Patanjali yoga. He said the same thing. Like mm-hmm. yoga is yoga. It's just different ways of doing it. It's, let's all just call it yoga. But we're like, nope, this <laughs> is a construct. <laughs> this mm-hmm. is the yoga. This is what it looks like. These are the poses. This is when you practice it. You know, and so we bought into this whole construct. And so we can't like overnight just be like, well, you know, let's just get rid of the name. You know, you know, there's still that construct there and the repercussions of building that construct Mm -hmm. um, that are there. So it's like, 
you know, we can't give up white and black just yet because it's a construct we've created um, and it's going to take a while to unpack it. Um, And until we unpack it, we've got to have a way to put some some words around it. But definitely, you know, um, you know, once we it's kind of like you've got to like you've got to like stop the bleeding first. Yeah. Or you can get to all the other stuff. So yeah, everyone should come together and work together, but it's like there's there's some bleeding, some bleeding going on, you know? Yeah. Like, you know, it's some bleeding, you gotta stop the bleeding. So before we can all come together and work together, we gotta focus on what's bleeding. Um, and so, you know, I do feel that um um the more melanated you are, especially in the United States, the more bleeding that's probably occurring right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think we have to kind of stop the bleeding a little bit, uh, or a lot bit <laughs> before we can get rid of some of these like constructs. It, it's, re- it's super interesting. Cause like, that's really at the, at the heart of it. Like when you say someone is an Ashtanga Yogi, like what we're talking about is, is forms and are you conforming? And at the end of the day, these boundaries are constructed and they're really elusive. And so are we going to stop using these words because they don't adequately fit everything within the basket? Mm-hmm. You know, so like, I mean, we were talking about language last week, the same way that, you know, is, is it English when it's spoken in Georgia? Is it English when it's spoken in England? Is it England when it's spoken in Alaska? It's, those are di- they're almost, they've almost become different so different as to not be able to to hold the same to to stay within the basket but at the same time we still have to use words right so yeah big words are helpful Hmm. it kind of reminded me what you were saying of um like as as a yoga practitioner we want to experience this state of non-duality and transcend these boundaries transcend our mind but but Hmm. we also have to function and exist within a, a very dual universe where we have boundaries and we have duality and the table yeah. is the table and it's different than my hand. And right. to all appearances, you're female and I'm male. Yeah. That's what you know, people say. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, you have to kind of go through the, the acknowledging and recognizing the duality first um, in order to, to move beyond it in a, in a sense, you can't really get beyond it without being um seeing it for what it is yeah 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 and you know it's interesting that you use the male female like that's what what's kind of we've always had this whole gender um you know there's always been more genders than male and female you know throughout history and Mm -hmm. more ways of looking at it but now you see you know people like really just like no we're not buying into the binary Mm-hmm. And starting to make that slow transition of doing the work and moving away from those binaries um, and what is happening in um, um, and how it affects them in society. And it's beautiful. And, you know, who knows? Maybe that will start happening one day for the whole black, white type of binary as yeah. well. Mm-hmm. It's, it's got to be tough for the French, though. Because like, like, even like a table is like gendered, f- gendered in French. <laughs> you know, it's a male, it's, you, you, it's a male table. It's a female, you know, you know. Sofa. Sofa. I don't know. I don't know. You know, <laughs> like they got to really struggle with this thing. <laughs> I have thought about that too. I'm like, yeah, but what about the masculine? Yeah. No words. <laughs> yeah. No, they can't. They've got to like stop speaking French. That's their main problem. <laughs> the French. <laughs> <laughs> Our son's in French school, so. <laughs> oh. Yeah. I have a um, another post. Dear white people, when black people tell you about racism, believe them. And I I was really excited about that one too. It's it's I I I had a conversation with a. Um, a Canadian black woman who's a dear, dear friend, African-American. She was actually born in Detroit, but she was raised here in Calgary. And I was trying to explain to her the electoral college 
and how the whole electoral college is built around the idea of slave owners having enough votes and having equal votes to a majority population in the North. And our entire political system is built on racism and mm-hmm. slavery. And like you could say the economy and the country and everything that, that Americans, it's just all built on slavery. And, mm-hmm. and I feel like that's um, not often acknowledged. It's not, it's an ugly part of the history of the United States. And that is, that is absolutely not acknowledged at all. Mm-hmm. Like even like the Capitol riots, the insurrection is, to me, it's, it's a kind of, it, they're trying to enforce Jim Crow laws by trying to throw out black votes in Atlanta and Philadelphia. Like that's their major problem is that Trump told them that black votes have to be, those had, they had to be rigged. There's, you cannot believe black voters when they say they voted. Mm. And that's, that's at the heart of why these white supremacists stormed the Capitol was to enforce this, this, the white, the black suppression in the country. Mm. It's a, it's a troubling situation. It is. And we'll see what happens. I think, um, isn't the swear in date is it's Wednesday. Tomorrow? Wednesday, tomorrow at noon. <laughs> yeah. I knew. Yeah, we're going to see the backside of him tomorrow morning, and then we're going to have a whole different country. Hopefully. It's, it ain't going to be that different. It's just going to be. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to have a different face at the helm. Um, <laughs> yeah. We'll see how different it is. But, um, <laughs> yeah. Because, yeah. I mean, those people who stormed the Capitol, they just going home. You know, they're mm-hmm. not. They're not going to yeah. live here and go poop at, you know, yeah. at, you know, at 12 p.m. tomorrow. Like, they're just going to go back home. To, you That's know, right. Because, like, how are you going to arrest? Still 70, out here. <laughs> how are you going to arrest 70 million people? Because that's really... You know, 70 million people looked at that guy and said, yeah, I'm gonna, I want more of that. They'll <laughs> <laughs> yeah, be out here when Biden gets uh, gets sworn in. They're still going to be out there. <laughs> yeah. I really found it interesting. Um, back last year um, when Black Lives Matter, when there was all the protests and things going on and people were um, trying to elevate melanated voices and, um, you know, making a lot of posts on social media about, um, you know, Black Lives Matter and, and in support of, of this, you know, cause and what was going on. Um, and you made a post about uh, something to the effect, I don't have the exact quote, but um, that you had had some white friends contacting you and saying that they couldn't believe that they were being unfollowed by people and, Mm. um, you know, their posts weren't really getting liked and (laughs) different things like this. And I just, can you speak to that a little bit? It was so interesting to me that. I I, I always, I'm always getting DMs and emails and messages, uh, all the time, but yeah. Um, I, you know, had a couple of of white friends who were vocal and yeah, they lost followers and uh, that's something that they had uh, to deal with in their life. Mm -hmm. Um, For me, it is liberating um, (laughs) when I speak my truth and Mm -hmm. I see the benefit of it. Like I honestly have way more followers now than I did. Honestly, my follower account like doubled <laughs> within the past year or so. Mm-hmm. Um, like after I left the normal yoga scene here in Charlotte, um, I mean, it, my follower count like doubled. Um, and I get opportunities out the wizoo uh, to to teach and to speak and to write and to do videos. Um, And I have more money coming in than I did when I was towing the line. 
So for me, it's mm. the exact opposite. And I could see how with um, my less melanated um, brothers and sisters, how it could be the opposite for them, that uh, they start to lose some of their privilege and start to see how that feels, yeah. um, that it's part of, it's part of doing the work, honestly. Um, that, you know, once they start to lose some of their privilege and some doors start to open, to close, then you really start to see wow, like the fact that you've been, you know, surrounded by racists and bigots um, your whole life mm-hmm. and worked with them and done yoga with them and had your mat beside them and taught them <laughs> a lot of times um, and without even knowing. So it is a big wake up call. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, if, you know, we're taking that oath of ahimsa as yogis, you know, it's part of our duty in, in mitigating harm um, and I think in the end, you know, you can create um, a new community, um, which is what I have been doing. And it's been wonderful. Um, and I'm so glad that all of the people who uh, <laughs> really were just performative are no longer wanting to be around me. It's amazing to me. I'm happy, <laughs> I'm happy they're not here anymore. <laughs> <laughs> that's yeah that's less attention that you don't need yeah yeah huh can you can you tell us more about a foundation that you started um which i think is also about seeking more community and more positive community uh the yoga for recovery foundation and, and what is all that about so yoga for recovery foundation uh is a nonprofit organization um, one of my um, teacher friends here in Charlotte, North Carolina, um, was starting an organization and, um, and she is um, in recovery. Um, we starting an organization um, from drug addiction. Um, and she was always about, listen, we're all in recovery from something, which is our tagline. And she was like, we're all in recovery from something. And then one day she overheard me saying that I wanted to start a nonprofit um, to help um, marginalized people have more access um, to yoga and the healing of yoga. Mm-hmm. And she heard me talk about it. She was like, well, we should get together because, you know, that is still, that is trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of trauma involved in um, the BIPOC and the Black community, having to live in a world um, your whole entire life that does not see you as good enough or equal Um takes a huge toll. And so it is trauma and it is an act of recovery um, to heal from it. And so I went in with her as one of the pillars of our organization. So right now it is, um, we help people who are in recovery from addiction um, and their families. And we also help um, BIPOC people have access to, um, to yoga. And so we started that organization. It's a very, it's a baby, maybe about a year and a half, two years ago. And so um, we're excited about growing it and what's going on with that. And we've got some workshops coming out um, soon. Um, So yeah, it's amazing. It's just another way for me to be able to provide access to communities who don't have access. Mm -hmm. Have you heard of the, the ACE exam? Um, the ACEs exam? Yeah, the uh, uh, adverse childhood experiences. Yes, I have heard about that. And um, I am actually uh, in a course with a teacher who um, is going to be, um, that's part of the mo- one of the modules. Uh-huh. And I really look forward to it. But yeah, how systemic oppression um, and um, has an effect on, on health. Yeah. The trauma of it, it has an effect on health. I mean, there was a, something that just was released, I think, a couple of days ago that said that the mortality rates for um, for African-Americans, for Black people had went down this year. Everybody's mortality rate went down. Oh, yeah. But, um, it went even lower for Black people. I'm sorry, by mortality rate, you mean like the lifespan? Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay, yeah, not I, like the rate of people dying, but like that more people are dying. Yes, sorry. Okay. Yeah, okay. <laughs> the amount of time that we have here on the planet, like the age dropped um, significantly, um, honestly, across, you know, all like categories, all yeah. 
but it dropped way more yeah. uh, for black people this year, you know? Yeah. So like, it does affect um, the black community, you know, trauma and um, COVID and all of that stuff affects yeah. us at a disproportionately higher rate. I, I had done a, a, um, a lot of work presenting ACEs in different communities. Um, I had heard Dr. Nadine Burke Harris um, yes. from, from East Palo Alto, from um, San Francisco. Um, she had done some pioneering work with, with uh, uh, African-American populations in um, Hunter's View, Bay Point, San Francisco. And what she always liked to talk about with ACEs that I really liked, which she would start off by saying is like, look, the, the initial study was with, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get the numbers wrong, but I think it was like 10,000 people, but maybe it was 50,000 people. But that 70% of them were, were white middle-class people and college-educated in California out of the Kaiser Permanente group. And I, I remember like looking up when she said that in the audience, and then I remember taking the exam and, and like I was going through the list of, of, of markers like because it's a one out of ten exam. And every time something comes up that's an adverse childhood experience for you, you put a point on, right? As, as I'm sure you know, but I'm just kind of reiterating for our audience. And so divorced parents, you know, right away you get a point. And that's, you know, right away, 50% of the country gets a point for that. Maybe if there's um, a drug abuse in the household or there's a sexual abuse or certain things are weighted more than others. Like if a kid sees a killing, it's, it's, all, it's not just a point. It's a pretty, it's heavy, you know. But then I saw the incarceration piece on the exam. I was like, oh, you know, that really stood out to me. And I was like, oh yeah, my dad's been incarcerated. So that's, that's yeah, for selling drugs in the house and, you know, abuse of the family and a subsequent divorce. It was like, I came up with like a score of like six or seven. Uh, out of 10. Mm -hmm. And then you see all of these health effects that come out of it. And, you know, um, depression, uh, obesity, um, self-harming, drug abuse. And I was just kind of like, yeah, this is like the, the case family picnic. You know, this is a case family reunion is all these, all of these things. Mm -hmm. And I was I was amazed by it because it all came down to dysregulation, a dysregulated stress response. And so much of our work is about fixing that mm -hmm. in our communities. How can we get people to start regulating their stress response? And I, I remember talking to a woman in, in Milwaukee who came up to me and part of the African-American community there and she was uh, a social worker at one of the schools in Milwaukee and she said Russell um, I don't know about this exam because like me and every one of my friends is going to get a 10 on this exam like what kind of exam is this mm. you know like this is and it's like okay well if you and every one of your friends has gets a 10 then we need to start talking about what we're all going to be experiencing statistically for health mm -hmm. and maybe bring it back to what can we do about it? Mm -hmm. And I, again, I want to, I want to say that, you know, you're so proactive and, and, and your website and is so wonderfully constructed. So much of your work seems to be about that, which is getting to the heart of why people are getting sicker, why people are, are hurting inside. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the house that's on fire right now. <laughs> yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Well, how do you how do you cope? What do you do? I mean, my yoga practice is still like my companion, and I still practice six days a week. Um, and my family, I, um, my husband, and my daughter. Um, are absolutely amazing. I can talk to them about anything. They're always here in support of me and what I'm doing. 
Um, I am privileged to be inside of a home where I have space to to decompress and to um, let go um, and to grieve if I need to. So, you know, it's a privilege that I have and that is why I am able to take this work on, um, which is an important point because everyone um, does not have that space to be able to take this work on. And I think people need to understand that there's this idea that, um, you know, I've seen uh, people DM me and they get mad because they feel like, well, you know, I asked you a question, so you should be answering it. Mm. You should be carrying the burden of this work um, as a black person. And I'm like, no, it is my choice whether or not I uh, choose to educate you at this moment or not. Um, and whether or not I ask you for payment as well is my mm. choice. Um, and I have no obligation to you because you showed up and with a question and wanting help um, because a lot of people don't have, you know, and sometimes I don't have the space for it and a lot of people don't. So I'm just privileged to be able to have um, this space in my life to be able to, to speak up and to help um, however I can help and, and wherever I can help. Uh, but yeah, my family, my yoga practice, um, all of it like supports me. Hmm. And it's amazing that you're also sharing that with communities that where it probably wouldn't be available otherwise. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can you um, tell us a little bit how you're doing that? What's what's coming up for you? Oh, so much is coming up for me. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, it's a long list. Um, so um, I have a yoga and social justice 25 hour uh, immersion that is coming up uh, at the end of February. Um, mm-hmm. And it's on my website. It is also wellness underscore yogini is my Instagram handle. And if you go to my bio there, you'll see it. It is open to anyone and everyone. It has scholarships, like no one is turned away. There's no one who cannot come to this. If you cannot afford it, um, YFR Foundation has funding. We will pay your way in so that you can get that information. No one is turned away. It's kind of a no excuses type of thing. It's kind of like, well, if you say you want the information and you don't sign up, well, it's because you really didn't want the information. Um, like, honestly, like, you know, anyone can come. It's it's for everyone. Um, and so that is at the end of this month. Um, and I also have a, uh, I really love chair yoga. So I've got a chair yoga Ooh. flow class that I'm going to be doing um, in March. And that one is BIPOC only. Um, I uh, believe in creating spaces where people can feel like totally free to be themselves and, um, and, you know, can like unwind and, you know, unravel the way they want to. Um, So that one's BIPOC only. uh, And that is also in my bio. It's going to be super fun. I think chair yoga is super creative. People think of it as like, oh, you know, um, it's just for people who can't move, people who are differently abled, just for older people. Um, but it's actually uh, not. It can be very challenging, very fun, very creative. So um, I will be doing that. So that's just a couple of things that I'm going to be doing um, that I think people might be interested in being a part of. Yeah, that's so cool. I've, I've seen some of your posts with the chair yoga, um, some of the postures that you're demonstrating, and it's it's so creative and so interesting. It's, it's really, um, I love it. It's, it's very cool. I love how you're just connecting with, you know, so many different um, types of people and people with abilities or without abilities. And, and it's also, even if you are an able-bodied person, it's very challenging. Some of these things that you're showing. Yes. And, you know, we're, and honestly, we're not, we also aren't all going to be able-bodied forever. No one is. (laughs) Tell me about it. (laughs) No one is. Um, But the chair, you know, people don't um, realize, but the chair is really good for like setting up body position. Mm. Um, And it, um, so aligned and it actually is a, a support for your weight. 
So you can actually stay in the pose and hold it longer and be with it. Um, I just heard a lovely podcast where um, an Iyengar student was talking about this idea that BKS Iyengar believe that if we were supported enough in a pose, we could actually find that Narodaha uh, state, um, that really state of like being uh, fully absorbed, that we could actually find it in a yoga pose. And that was one of the reasons why he added in all these um these different things like ropes and straps and all of this chairs and all of that. And so, yeah, chair yoga can get your body set up in a way that is supported, like in your yoga, your warrior one, and you can really just be there in that posture, um, breathing in this beautiful supported way. Um, so there's so much benefit from it that anyone can get, no matter what you know, how long you've been practicing or what's going on with your body. Amazing. Mm. Those sound really incredible. Mm-hmm. Mm. Well, I just want to thank you so much for the, the work that you do. And I know it's um, being an activist means you, you have to, you really have to dig out and find space for self-care. So much of you goes out to other people. And I just want to thank you for that, for that work. Well, thank you guys. Uh, it was a great interview. This was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for coming on our shows. Such a pleasure. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of Finding Harmony. With me, your host, Harmony Slater. You can find out more information on my website, harmonyslater.com. And I look forward to connecting with you again soon.